We'd like to begin by acknowledging the traditional owners of the land on which we're recording in Australia. We also acknowledge the traditional custodians of the various lands on which you're listening to us today. And we'd like to pay our respects to elders past and present. Hello and welcome to Cerebral Conversations. I'm Andy McLean. And I'm Ben McCallery. Hello. This episode is one for the science and technology geeks and freaks like me. Uh, No, and really anyone who's curious about the meaning of life and the future of humanity. Sounds pretty intense, Andy. Yeah, it does sound deep, but I tell you what, our guests make it really entertaining. We've got multi-award winning STEM journalist and broadcaster Ray Johnston talking with engineering technology expert Professor Alistair McEwen. Yeah, this conversation will get you thinking about a lot of things, including how AI, virtual reality, robotics, and a bunch of other tech could be game changers for people living with cerebral palsy. This is really the episode where we peer into the crystal ball to ask what the future holds. And you know what? There's quite a few reasons to be optimistic, I reckon. So... Let's hear what our two technology gurus have to say. So, Alistair, I'd like to start by why you came to work for the Cerebral Palsy Alliance in the first place. Oh, it's an interesting story, yeah. Um, I'm an electrical engineer, so it's a strange background to come into this area. Um, And I was working on this obscure radio standard i didn't think it was going to go anywhere it was named after a a viking called bluetooth and i thought no one is ever going to use this technology so i think i may have heard of bluetooth i think i might be using it right now Uh so that was your phd that's in that area yeah Uh, at that time my, my my first son was born and he had some challenges around getting enough nutrition at near birth and i found out about this whole area where engineers can help out um, with, with uh, newborn babies who are struggling due to different problems and um, cerebral palsy is really you know it's the culmination of a lot of those problems so I think I find it a really interesting area in that side of That's, things. When I think cerebral palsy I don't naturally think this is something that engineers can help with how does that work what what do bre- engineers bring to the table? Honestly most engineers run away when they hear about um, babies who are sick it's very difficult you know um, you know it is a male dominated area engineering unfortunately but biomedical engineering is is um, is becoming more balanced which is great what we can do is is really think about um, how to make the technology for for the clinicians that look after the babies um, and how really importantly to um, to pick up the best data um, you know, we, we hear a lot about our data being used by big companies and little babies who are being heavily monitored in a neonatal intensive care unit. Nadia Badawi, in a previous episode, she mentioned this, that there's all this data coming out of these uh, monitors. You know, we, we really need to take advantage of, of, of what that's telling us and help build models to predict w- which way those babies are going to go if we treat them in different ways. 
So you're taking that data. What are you building with that data? Are you are you building artificial intelligence systems? What's what's happening with it? Yeah, our aim is to build uh, artificial intelligence that has doctors in the loop. So it's to help clinicians make decisions about what what treatment to to um, to do, because at the moment they'll they'll look at that data. Um, They'll maybe look one day in the past, um, but it's difficult to get a, a really long picture of, of what's going on over a long period of time. So it's really about giving them kind of that data visualization. Uh, one of our kind of futuristic projects is to develop like a virtual baby that will be able to see how they develop over time into the future and then simulate how changes might change that development so we could see you know if, if, if say a brain injury which could lead to cerebral palsy would be you know the effect would be lessened or in, in, in different ways. So that's incredible and I can imagine that having applications for you know, every baby really being able to be given essentially that's you're talking about having an instruction manual for newborns that's what every parent would want right? Absolutely yeah <laughs> absolutely I, I mean I you know at the moment there are parents with with their children in neonatal intensive care unfortunately and you know if there's a pandemic going on they they it's challenging for them to go and visit i can just imagine um, we can create systems where maybe the parents can have uh, virtual reality goggles and you know be seeing you know how the baby is or even during pregnancy you know i was always fascinated about what was going on day to day week to week you know you could really you know, give people a really like a, an insight and, a, and just create a stronger connection, you know, for, for mothers and fathers and all the family. So that's my origin story, Ray. I'd be interested in hearing how you got um, involved in working in STEM. <laughs> I've got a little bit of a convoluted path into STEM, actually. I was always one of those kids that loved science and loved reading. I was, I was always a bit of a geek growing up. I wear that badge quite proudly. And I actually started off wanting to be an actor. And I was doing a whole bunch of you know, commercials and theatre and, and all of those sorts of things. It was, it was something that I was really pushed to do by myself after I had my son quite young. I had my son when I was 18 and, and I had a whole bunch of people around me tell me that that was it for me now. You know, you can't follow your dreams. And I went, well, no, that's not how it works because if I'm going to show him, if I'm going to turn around and say to him, you can be anything you want to be, I have to follow my dreams. And I never thought that there would be something that would combine science and performing, but it turns out, science communication fits that bill quite nicely and I went from acting into presenting and one of my first gigs was for a show reviewing video games and I just broadened my skill set from there. I went from covering just gaming to broader technology to everything that exists on the internet uh, into science as well and I became particularly passionate about the science that we're doing here in Australia. That's, you know, I'm a Wiradjuri woman, I'm Aboriginal woman, and you know, this country, this continent is something that is really important to me. So to be able to see the work that's being done in the realms of conservation and also bringing technology into that was just a beautiful intersection of my interests. So I am particularly fascinated by advances in technology that help make our lives better but I would love to hear from you now. 
we've heard in other episodes the importance of early intervention in cerebral palsy and and I'd like to know from you what role you believe technology plays in this space and the advancements over recent years and also what can we expect in the future but we'll we'll start with what role it's playing now what what's happening right now there are lots of programs and studies about uh, the effect of early intervention, and it's really been shown to make a, a huge difference. We we know that it makes a big difference in, you know, in, in brain injury when it happens in, a, in to an adult. Um, so it, it makes a lot of sense. It would it would uh, make a big difference in in babies as they develop, and they also and children, and and of course children have that the benefit that they're that they're still developing. Their brain is still changing. It's wiring itself. You know, they're making those connections. Um, and you mentioned gaming. I think ga- gaming is a big opportunity um, that we really want to take advantage of. So we're thinking about how we can um, build on some of the research that we're doing and include gamification of the therapies that babies sometimes need to do or parents need to do with their with their children. People obviously, you know, they have you know large families, many kids, and and they might have a, a child with a with a disability, and they feel that you know they want to spend as much time as they can, and we think we can we can support that with technology. Um, you know, as simple as something as a computer game, even a um, a way of controlling whether a video is playing or not. Um, you know, by doing that exercise that you need to do with your muscle. Um, another one, a big one, is communication. Um, a, nearly half the people with uh, cerebral palsy have communication difficulties um, because it's, you know, it's a physical disability, so it can affect your voice as well, the, your, the muscles that you use to, to speak. Many, many people will use different, different technology um, to communicate, such as eye gaze. We, you know, the, those systems are, uh, they're, they're not like using, you know, a nice Apple mobile phone or something like that. They're, they're quite clunky. Then they're not designed for a huge group. Um, so making them more fun to use, I think, is a really key thing. And, and to point to, to something else that Nadia mentioned, um, we know that, that some people, um, you know, even with a high IQ, they, they have a slower communication speed. So they're, they're not able to communicate at the rate maybe that we're communicating right now. Um, and we want to use technology to, to give them that faster communication channel, maybe through a Bluetooth connection as well. <laughs> Maybe, maybe. That's I'm always really interested in how eye gaze technology is being used. That's I've been familiar with it being used in gaming for quite a few years now. And there's even specific charities set up like Special Effect in the UK that they build these gaming systems for people who use eye gaze to play. And the benefits that they can get from it, from social interaction to problem-solving skills, even just escapism is enormous, but we do hear a lot of negativity around games and gaming. There's a lot of concerns that parents might have putting their children, you know, in front of these systems, even in a therapeutic kind of way. What what are your thoughts on this and how would you alleviate some of those fears around, you know, the, the terrors of gamification? Mm, I, th- I think the, the pandemic we're having has really taught us a lot about um how we should think about this. I mean, it is a, you know, that, that is a question that all of our community needs to talk about. If you, as an engineer, if, if I speak, you know, I'll, I'll be very biased to, to take the benefits of technology, but I have, you know, I have two, two children who are homeschooling and spending a lot of time behind the screen um, and I can see the changes in behavior. It's, I don't think it's a black and white 
question because um, you know it, it's also providing um, my 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 kids play a lot of Minecraft, playing together in a collaborative way with the friends that they have at school enables them to stay in touch during the lockdown. So there are many many ways that the, the gaming is is providing a positive benefit, and we I think we just need to tread carefully. Even the World Health Organization suggested gaming as something for people to be able to do safely during lockdown, to be able to stay in touch with friends and family. So it, it does feel like the tide is turning a little when it comes to how gaming is viewed by people. But I'd love to hear from you about exoskeletons. This is this is something that I have a, a bit of a fascination about, and I believe that you have a story about a family in Sydney that will want their son to try a, an exoskeleton. Can you tell me about that? Yes, we're very excited about that. Uh, we, this is an example, really, of um, Cerebral Palsy Alliance, a, an amazing organisation. Um, you mentioned before that you know we, we have these uh, scientists in Australia and organisations. Cerebral Palsy Alliance is the oldest organization in, in the world in this area and the biggest funder of cerebral palsy research. And we came up with this plan. Um, you know, exoskeletons are around a lot in Japan, in the military. People are interested in, in them for, um, for, for older, taking care of older people. You know, as we all get older, I think we'll probably be finding exoskeletons more and more. But what we wanted to do with Cerebral Palsy Alliance completely differently was to say how young can we, can we use a, an exoskeleton? So can we intervene early in children under two years old and um, use an exoskeleton so that those children can keep up with their, you know, other children their age and meet those milestones as well? When we're talking about an exoskeleton, can you describe to me what the ones you're working with look like? Uh, a simple answer would be Big Hero 6 is what we, what we want oh, to yeah. get towards. So with, with children, we're, we're talking about soft exoskeletons. So the, the ones you might have seen uh, are like an electric motor and, and connected with some metal parts to keep it together and, and give you a, you know, a nice, strong, hard exoskeleton that can help you stand up because we're, you know, we're big adults. But children are soft, small and soft. People might remember that their that their joints are kind of soft as well. So the idea is to use a soft device like a like an airbag in a car or a um, a balloon, very much like a balloon actually. That that is just placed under their knee, and when they need to stand up, the balloon um, is filled up with air, and so they're softly assisted to stand up. And when they want to sit down, the the air leaves the balloon. And so they, and just as the, air, the balloon deflates, they slowly sit down. Um, and if they fall over, um, you know, we, we really want to get to the stage where this is completely wearable for the, for the infants and they can play and crawl around and stand up and do all the things that all infants do, um, rather than being in sort of a robotic-like device. That feels like it would make such a difference in their lives. It should. <laughs> we, we, yeah. we, we know that, that if, if children at that age um, can receive lots of intensive physical therapy um, as much as possible every day um, and have access to a physical therapist, they'll do that up, but not everyone can, especially under these circumstances. And, and normally, you know, people in remote communities and places like that, they, they, that's very difficult. So to have a 
relatively low cost device that could be you know, made available to anyone anywhere in the world. This device is actually being made in Hong Kong. Um, you know, it, it's an international project and we really want to see it used everywhere it possibly can. I'd love for you to tell me about Aaron, the radio host. You've got a story about him. Yes, I met Aaron um, when he was a university student. Um, I think he was getting into radio then. So someone with some uh, interests that that are like yours, I I guess. (laughs) Um, (laughs) So Aaron um, is uh, living independently now um, and very um, interested in smart homes and things like that. So, you know, talking to an assistant that can help do things around the home for him. But one of his uh, issues is his hand mobility um, and finds it difficult to use his hand muscles. One question we were asked, we put to him really was, what would be something, what would be better for you to, to kind of have an exoskeleton on your hand or to have an implant in your hand like a cochlear implant, um, ah. like that. I think the cochlear implants that Nadia mentioned that, um, you know, yeah. you see these videos of, of children when they have their cochlear implant turned on and um, just oh, it's beautiful. Mm, yeah. It's huge jerking moments mm-hmm. of them hearing for the first time. Yeah. So this is a, this is something that he was deciding between an exoskeleton or a, a hand implant. Yes, or surgery, permanent surgery. So that's another option. People do undergo permanent surgery to, to uh, release their muscles, um, to give them some function back. But that, that's a one-way street, whereas with a, something like a cochlear implant, there's technology involved and it hasn't been proven yet, but you can turn it on and off or you can turn it up and down in volume. And so you could make your muscles less tight or tighter depending on how you're feeling that day. Um, so I think this is a huge uh, enabler in, in cerebral palsy because we know that the, the muscles are there, they're just not being controlled well. Um, so what we need to do is enable the person to um, send the signal from their brain or talk to Siri to tell their, their implants to do this, um, and then they could um, turn their muscles on and off, and that could, that could help them walk as well without an exoskeleton. That's incredible. That's amazing. I've, I've never heard of this before. I'm so glad to be speaking to you and hearing about this. Have we seen this being used widely or in you know, small groups or where are we at with this? Because this is amazing to me. Yes, it is in small groups. There are some challenges to, um, to overcome. The technology is similar to a pacemaker um, or a cochlear implant. And now there are brain implants as well for people with Parkinson's. Um, some people might have seen those. Someone, um, you turn on the brain implant and the, the, um, the tremors in Parkinson's cease. Yes. Um, and th- they all work really well because the implant is attached with some bone and that doesn't move around the body because of the bone. Um, whereas if we put them in a muscle, uh, we have the problem of, of them moving around and, and our muscles move as well. So that's some of the things we need to overcome. And we're making them much smaller, which solves that problem as well. We've we've heard a lot about brain implants recently because their usage is increasing for a whole range of reasons. And I think one of the more mainstream reasons we hear about is, is Elon Musk wants to make some money with Neuralink and that gets a lot of attention. But Neuralink hasn't even begun clinical trials yet. But we're, on the other hand, you know, we've recently seen some promising results come out of clinical trials for brain implants 
but it has raised a few ethical questions that I'd love to hear from you about because with the closed loop brain stimulation that can monitor and decode brain activity and then automatically adjust treatment in those little electrical pulses that that's what's being used for epilepsy treatment at the moment and it's all based on software algorithms on artificial intelligence and you're changing brain activity which could in theory have some unintended effects on a person's sense of self or potentially their personality putting an implant in your brain will it will it change who i am in any significant way and i'm i'm wondering how do we weigh up the potential risks versus the benefits when we're talking about a technology that can in theory and potentially have such a profound impact on people in both positive and negative ways it's a big, big question. Yeah, we, we definitely need to have a huge debate in a very large community about this. Um, and I mean, Elon Musk has kind of helped us along by, you know, by strongly going out and saying, well, you know, it's now a race against us as humans and, and artificial intelligence, which is, you know, an interesting view that we don't know if yeah. that, that is the case. We certainly don't know, haven't seen artificial intelligence, you know, hasn't, doesn't have general intelligence yet. It, it no does things that we ask it to do. <laughs> That's, I think, one of the important things for listeners to understand is the, you know, the two types of artificial intelligence that we have, you know, one of them being applied artificial intelligence, which we see everywhere, every day. It's your voice assistance. It's autocorrect. It's you know, those basic things that you see artificial intelligence being used for. And that's because applied artificial intelligence is, to my understanding, and Alistair, you're the expert, correct me if I'm wrong. It is when we train a computer to do one specific task a lot faster than we can do it and hopefully better and more accurately. General artificial intelligence, on the other hand, is where a computer could pick up any task that a human brain could do and just switch from task to task as required and apply learnings from previous tasks to the current task. And that's just something that computers can't do at the moment. They don't have a whole lot of common sense. General artificial intelligence is more something that's being developed in a lab deep in Google right now. <laughs> but correct me if I'm wrong, Alistair, or, or you have another perspective on that. Well, I, you know, it's interesting you mentioned Google. Um, uh, when you were, you, you were talking about um, artificial intelligence learning a new task. And uh, th this is one thing we see with the, with the smart assistants, like the Google Assistant or Siri or um, they're hopeless with accents um, and they're hopeless with dysarthric <laughs> speech, which is what a lot of people with cerebral palsy have. But they, Google are, are attacking that. They have a project to record speech from, from people with dysarthria and, and anyone can jump on and join that project. Uh, I mean, uh, other companies are doing the same, Amazon and Apple and Microsoft. They know that this is, you know, we, we, we've, as we've seen with the um, campaigns around disability recently with the Paralympics, you know, it, 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 there's a big opportunity and they, it's great to see that, that, that they're taking advantage of that and everyone will benefit, hopefully. Yeah, absolutely. Um, do you have any stories where people's lives have been, you know, impacted in a, in a positive way by this kind of speech recognition? 
Well, there's a company, Voiceit, that works with Amazon. And uh, yeah, pro probably the, this, the, the one story I'll mention is um, about a, um, a, a young man with cerebral palsy who, um, you know, he took the very simple approach. He, he uses a speech generating device to communicate. Um, so he um, recorded his speech generating devices um, sound and taught um, Alexa to understand that. Oh, perfect. See, I've, I've seen people do this when they've got really heavy accents that, you know, Alexa or Siri haven't been able to understand in the past. So, you know, you, you see it often from Scottish people yes. <laughs> who have deep problems with getting these voice assistants to understand them. So it's fantastic to see that being used in that sense as well. That's a great idea. There's a lot of you know, well-meaning people and you know, well-meaning people working on programs to assist people with you know, cerebral palsy or with other disabilities who are utilising artificial intelligence and, and technologies around that. Where have people gotten it wrong, though? Because I know that there are some, some bad examples out there. Certainly one um, I've heard about is where people have taken um, algorithms and tried to use them um, in government services, such as disability services. That did happen in, in the US with, their, um, with the disability services budgets in some states. Um, you know, it, it's kind of something similar to what we saw might be happening here in the NDIS, where you know, things are broken down to very simple form with basic numbers and thresholds. Um, and, and in this case, um, it was the difference between if you'd had a fever or a pressure ulcer in the last three days, you, you, you would have kept your disability budget, but there were, few, there were people who didn't. Um, and so they didn't, they had their budget cut. <sighs> and, you know, they were left, uh, you know, unfortunately without a carer some days and unable to, you know, do things like just get out of bed or get to the bathroom. You know, it's really, um, as you say, well-meaning programs, but we can't rush in. Um, we, need to, we need to keep a person in the loop with the AI. That's exactly it. And that's whenever I see issues coming up with artificial intelligence systems that are impacting people in a negative way, it's because we have tried to remove that human element. And I think one of my favourite sayings is that artificial intelligence is neither artificial or intelligent. It is made by people and it is made to do one thing very specifically and we do need a real life person to jump in and be monitoring it and making sure that it's not making decisions that require a human touch. You know, we, we can't teach a computer to have empathy and to understand nuance and to understand how complex human beings are and to be able to provide exceptions to rules. We always need to have that in place. So as exciting and beneficial as AI can be and all the good ways we can use it, it's, robots are never going to take our jobs. They're absolutely not. You can't convince me of that. No way. Not in, not in areas like this. I think you're right. I mean, as, as a, it's, it's, we, you say we, yeah, we, I'm finding it hard to, to teach engineers empathy and they're the ones who program. <laughs> so that's, that's definitely one of the things we're trying to do is, is, is bring more empathy into, into how we teach um, future engineers because um, it's, it is so important. 
I think I think that's another reason why it's important to have a lot of diversity within the teams that are building these systems as well, so that a lot of different life experiences and perspectives can be embedded into these programs. You know, we, you only have to look example at examples of systems that have been created and you know, put into place all around the world that have you know racial bias or gender bias built in as part of it. It can be as damaging as the facial recognition software in the UK that was detecting criminals that weren't criminals. <laughs> they just happened to not be the white men that coded the systems. Mm-hmm. So the artificial intelligence couldn't tell the difference between facial features in anyone who wasn't a white man. Mm. You, you need that diversity on the team. It's, it's like the women that don't get shown job listings because those jobs have never really historically been filled by women. So the historical data that's being used is bias from the very beginning. But if we have those diverse teams and if we have teams that understand who is going to be using the product and who is going to be benefiting from it, I think there's a lot of potential for AI in this field in particular. I'm really excited by what the future might hold. I think we need the training data that includes all those diverse examples. Um, So one thing we're trying to do is include as many people with disabilities in our research and and, um, and have ways to for them to include their data in, in systems like the voice systems or uh, computer vision-based systems as well. Amazing. So I, w- I want to look forward to the future for a moment. I want to imagine that we're in the year 2040 and we've gotten a hold of climate change. That's not an issue anymore. We're just focusing on this particular issue. <laughs> Best case scenario. <laughs> We've solved the climate crisis and we're just focusing on technology, specifically how it's transformed the experience of people living with cerebral palsy. What tech in particular do you believe could really be a game changer in the future? I have to say, yeah, in response to that question, uh, um, by using technology, we've included people with disabilities um, in, in all of our um, technology and you know development and research work and that they were probably key to solving the climate crisis as well because we're currently missing out on a lot of you know the inclusion of a lot of people i think by the year 2040 um, we would have had a technology in in early life that i talked about before and stem cells um, that would have helped reduce the rate of cerebral palsy right down towards zero I can say that with confidence because the work at the Cerebral Palsy Alliance has reduced it by 30% already. What kind of period of time was that over? Uh, the last decade. Yeah, wow. Yeah. And so that's a huge amount <laughs> in a short period of time. Yeah. And just by focusing on what works and communicating that and setting up the infrastructure and guidelines to, you know, to give people the confidence to do to do those things. I think by 2040, uh, Really, we'll we'll have assistive technology similar to how we use our mobile phones and apps. So you'll be able to choose, you know, in a, in a, even in a hardware sense, what type of technology you'd like to use today. Uh, it might be different tomorrow. It might look different tomorrow, and you'll be able to choose that. You'll be able to dial up or down the amount of um, assistance that your muscles can provide um, if you have cerebral palsy. If you prefer, you could wear an exoskeleton or you could have 
your your robot helper that's in your house come and help you it just depend on your <laughs> preference that day and people people with communication difficulties or cognitive difficulties um you'll be able to communicate with that robot um as as, as fast as as normal speak speaking speed probably through a, a brain implant so it's a whole it's not just one thing is it it's a whole range of technologies really coming together that will work it's it's like having a a smorgasbord of tech to choose from depending on what your personal preferences and needs are and most tech companies are are very interested in in supporting accessibility and technology so you know we really see that with say microsoft i mean the ceo of microsoft has a has a son with cerebral palsy windows supports eye gaze xbox has an adaptive controller um, yes. And other companies have come as well with Nintendo um, having a, an adaptive controller as well now. It's just growing. And, and the companies I mentioned before as well, Apple and Google, um, you know, they, Amazon, they're becoming more and more accessible, accessibility focused. And of course, they know that by solving this really hard engineering and technology design problem, they make their devices better for everyone to use. And, and Ray, what, what would excites you about um, the year 2040? I'm really excited for a future where technology is more diverse and we are including all of those people who have been historically excluded from technology. I'm excited to see what it can do once everyone is represented accurately and appropriately and technology genuinely is for everyone everything is going to look so much more different and better when everyone can be involved and have a say about what the future looks like and what technology is being created. It's, it's going to be amazing. I can't wait. So we've painted this big optimistic picture of 2040 where we've got this whole range of technology for people to be able to choose from in order to make their lives easier and better. What needs to happen right now? And in the next few years as well, in order to make this happen, what obstacles are standing in our way and who do we need to be listening to? We really need to listen to families with disability, with cerebral palsy and other disabilities. We really need to know what technologies people want. Things change all the time. I think uh, with the COVID pandemic, people's interest in having tele- telehealth meetings and teleconferencing and gaming, it, you know, preferences have changed, acceptability's changed. People's appetite for things like implants has even changed. So we need to keep listening to them, involve them more and more. We want to do that um, even in virtual reality. Um, so getting people in and scaling that right across um, Australia and other countries as well. And in those environments, we can... Um, we can bring together data from those participants who want to share their data and be part of the research, um, their, their speech, their movements, um, their activity from their brain, their EEG brain signals. You know, all of that data can be really useful and um, go into some of the machine, artificial intelligence machine learning models that, um, that have been developed with more um, mainstream populations. So if we augment those models with with, um, with, that, with data from a more diverse population, um, we'll be able to make technology that helps more people. I think to, to get to a rate of cerebral palsy of to, to go down as, as far as we have already, we really need to pull together um, pediatricians, 
particularly those working in the neonatal intensive care units. They have a lot of data that, that is going through their units. And uh, yeah. um, Sasha Nadella in his, mem- in his book about um, Hit Refresh, about how he turned Microsoft around, he, he opens that book talking about the data in the neonatal intensive care units um, not being used. And so we need to bring all that data together. It's- yeah. It's been absolutely fascinating chatting with you, Alistair. I really appreciate the time that you've taken. Before we go, I I would like to know if there's anything in particular that you are excited by. What fires you? What lights you up inside when you think about utilising technology to help people? I think where I started was at heart. I'm an electrical engineer and I see the body as a, a very kind of electrical organism. So our cells communicate with electrical signals. They also communicate with chemicals and things like that, of course. For me, like the fundamental problem with something like cerebral palsy is the electrical connection between the brain and the muscles is, has not developed in a normal way because um, the brain injury happened before that connection was made down the spinal cord. We, we are able, with the technology we have right now, to, um, to replace that or augment that um, in a way. And we, we just really need to take that brave step of, of, of doing the trials. Um, there's there's a, a lot of work to do, but we can do it right now. And I think that, that really excites me. It could be applied to, to many disabilities, stroke, spinal cord injury, um, people with prosthetic limbs from amputations. So there's lots of, of applications of it, but it's a challenging problem uh, that a lot of engineers have shied away from. I think we need to be brave and soldier on and do it beautifully said thank you you've been listening to cerebral conversations a podcast produced by cerebral palsy alliance to learn more check out the show notes to this episode over at cerebralpalsy.org.au forward slash cerebral conversations and if you enjoyed the show please rate or review on your favourite podcast platform. And to join the conversation, follow us on Facebook and Instagram. Thanks again for listening. The music for this podcast was kindly supplied by Ocean Alley. Check out the band's music on Bandcamp or visit oceanalley.com.au.